Hey everyone, and welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington Church of Christ. I hope this will inspire you and help you grow in your faith as we see God move through His Word. Please stay tuned after to hear more about how you can help partner with us. Enjoy the message. A rich Texas oil baron. His daughter was getting to the age where she could be married. He didn't want just anybody marrying his daughter. He wanted someone who was brave and someone who was strong, a a real hero type. So he set up a test. Who could marry his daughter? And he built a 100-foot cement pond, swimming pool. And in that pool, he put a shark. And he said, any man who is able to swim this pool, he gathered all the eligible bachelors in his community. And he didn't want to just give away his daughter either. He offered an option. Want to know who the strong brave men were? Whoever could swim the length of the pool and make it out alive could either have $10 million straight cash, up to half his estate, or the hand of his daughter in marriage. Because he knew that if a person would go to such lengths and then give up the money and ask for his daughter, he knew that that would be the hero he was looking for. He made this announcement, anyone who swims the length of this pool can have $10 million, could have up to half of my estate or the hand of my daughter in marriage. And all of a sudden there was a splash. Somebody was in the water and swimming for all their might. And the shark moved in quickly. The man leaped out of the end of the pool just in time as the shark almost got him. Which Texas Aaron Baron, he said, whoa, this man is strong and brave. Let's see if he has what it takes. He said, would you like $10 million? No. Would you like up to half my estate? No. And this, would, you want the hand of my daughter in marriage. He said, no, I want the name of the guy who pushed me in. <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need heroes. Research says that... Uh, so I don't know who, I don't remember who I got the name. They polled Americans and uh, close to 80% of Americans say they have no living heroes. They know of no living heroes. They have no personal heroes that they look up to. We need heroes. We need people to look up to. We need people to try to imitate. We, we need heroes in our life. And, and Americans don't really have heroes, the research says. When we're looking for those heroes, we're looking for people who are brave and strong and who have the right kind of character that we would want to look at and maybe emulate, be like. If you don't have a hero today, I have a few I would like to recommend or suggest to you. Uh, One would be either one of my parents could be a hero. Uh, My dad and mom served in the school system and were teachers for over 30 years, my dad eventually uh, moved out of uh, the classroom and into administration, became a principal. And I saw them, as I grew up, I saw them make a difference in hundreds, literally hundreds of students' lives, probably thousands. Uh, my mom was a fourth grade teacher for uh, maybe 25 years, and then for about six years she became a fine arts teacher. And there was a thousand elementary students in her school. And every year when she was a fine arts teacher, she would meet with every single student in that school um, and she would have fine arts class. She'd meet with a thousand students a week. And, and, you know, to stick into a school system and to 
be people of integrity and to teach kids and try to point them in the right direction. That is what a hero is. Might I recommend to you, if you don't have a hero, my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law does our taxes. (laughs) That is such a blessing to us. The ministers have a different tax bracket, and they change the rule for ministers every year, and she takes the classes she needs to learn what that is, and then she does the work for us, so it helps our family out, and uh, she is a fantastic grandmother to my kids. Might I recommend my mother-in-law? Maybe my father-in-law. My father-in-law served two tours of duty in Iraq. And he presented this flag to our family and it says, uh, this flag was flown in your honor above the command station in Iraq during Iraqi freedom in 2007. You know, any, anybody who serves in the military and serves in that fashion is eligible to become a hero. Might I recommend my father-in-law? He's also a uh, fantastic granddad to my kids. We need heroes. You know, uh, my wife, may I recommend my wife? She is a registered nurse, and literally she has made a difference in lives of her patients, but when, as, as a nurse, she's, she has been in the process of saving life. And um, I remember the first time, and I didn't do very well with this, but um, she handled it really well. The first time one of her patients uh, ended up passing away, it just affected her heart so much because she's a great nurse. Might I recommend my wife, as a hero. She's fantastic to mother, to my children. Any first responders, nurses, doctors, police officers, might I recommend them to be, we need heroes. We need heroes. The prophet Isaiah, in his uh, book that he wrote, he was writing during a time where um, both nations of Israel, the northern nation Israel and the southern nation Judah, were being destroyed and people were being exiled from their homes and they were experiencing death and they needed a hero. The prophet Isaiah, he holds out the truth that, and really, if you don't have a hero, this is probably who you should turn to. God should be our hero. If you don't have a hero, I recommend you find one, and I think you ought to follow the recommendation of Isaiah that God should be your hero. Now, sometimes that might seem like a difficult choice to make, but I'd like to tell you three qualifications God has to be a hero. I think all heroes have these qualifications, um, but God has it in abundance. Heroes show up, they set free, and they stoop down. Heroes show up, they set free, and they stoop down. Heroes show up. In the day of Isaiah, as he was writing his uh, prophecy, God was revealing not only uh, the time they were living in, but future times to him. He was writing to a people who needed God to show up. In those days, um, a lot of times when nations went to war against nation they would have this idea that their gods were actually in battle in the spiritual realm as well as in the earthly realm. And whichever nation would win, that would be the God who was the most strong. Well, as Judah watched Israel to the north be wiped out by the Assyrians, Judah 
would say something like this. They would say, well, we know our northern countrymen, the people of Israel, had rejected God, and they weren't really his favorite. That's why God would allow the Assyrians to come in and wipe them out, and that's what Assyria did. The ten tribes that lived north in Israel, Assyria, this brutal nation, came in, and their idea of wiping out a people was not only go in and kill and rape, but they would also destroy, take the people out and exile them to, and fling them to the far parts of the world, especially the leaders. And that way, if they were all spread out and, and flung all over the world, they could never band back together to fight against the Assyrian government. They wouldn't cause any trouble. And that became known as the Lost Tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom, they kept, continued to sing the praises of God in their psalms. And the Psalm 18 would talk about how God always protects and he's a great refuge and he is the strongest God. And, and uh, there's lots of psalms that do that. And then there were these psalms of lament and sadness where they would sing and they would sing his worship. God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? Why don't you come rescue me? But they really didn't have any of that to experience. And then all of a sudden... Babylon rose as a nation. And I say all of a sudden, this took 100 years. And Babylon destroyed the Assyrian nation and then moved in and set about to destroy Judah. And as Judah was being destroyed, and as their cities were raised to the ground, and as they were being deported, and as they were experiencing disease and destruction, they began to doubt their faith. They would start thinking, is God really who he says he is? Is he strong enough? Does he love us? I think that would be a really hard thing. If you think you are a chosen child of God and then something bad happens, it, we automatically start leaning into questions. Am I loved? Am I chosen? Does God really love me? Is he really taking care of me? And Judah was asking themselves these questions. And they needed a hero. They needed a hero to show up. They needed a hero to set them free from the Babylonian captivity. And they needed a hero to stoop down to rescue them because they couldn't do it themselves. Isaiah the prophet, he writes about such a hero. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah was inspired by God to write these words. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Prince, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We're looking at the names of Jesus here uh, over the next couple of weeks. And last week we looked at Jesus being called Wonderful Counselor and why that makes a difference for us. And today we're going to focus in on that little phrase, Mighty God. Why Mighty God is a phrase that we can depend on and we can look to and even make God our hero. And he deserves to be. Mighty God, that phrase in Hebrew, does give this idea of champion. Champion God. He's the God above all other gods. He's the God who created the other gods. Mighty God. It also has this idea of great hero. We could say that phrase if we wanted to, and it wouldn't be too far off translation. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Great Hero, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God, our champion God, our great hero. God should be our hero. Three reasons why God should be your hero. If he's not already your hero, would you pray that your eyes are open to this, these qualities of a hero? God who shows up, a God who sets free and a God who stoops down. Number one, the God who shows up. Heroes show up. 
heroes appear and they help you when you are in need of help. As Israel was uh, battling and eventually succumbing to Babylon, they were questioning if God was actually a strong enough God to show up and help them. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by if you experience hardship or you're going through a bad time or even if your country is at war and you're suffering defeat, don't be fooled that God is not showing up. Our God loves to intervene. When Moses asked God, who do I say has sent me? Now remember, Moses went to Israel when they were in captivity and they had been in captivity for 400 years and they were asking the question, can God show up? Does God show up? Don't think that just because you're experiencing something bad that God is not acting and active. When Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. Or in other words, I am active. I'm involved. Heroes intervene and heroes show up. Don't be fooled if you're experiencing something bad that God is not active. Sometimes he allows things to happen that are beyond our ability to recognize, see, or understand. When Isaiah was writing, he wrote about the Assyrian invasion of Israel, and he actually wrote about, before it happened, the Babylonian invasion, and then the rescue out of Babylon. He wrote these things, prophesied about them before they happened. When God looks at the world and he looks at nations, he sees them, Isaiah says, like a drop in a bucket, like dust on a scale. Have you ever seen a speck of dust? Have you ever been in your house and dusted and there's light coming through the window and you see the dust little particles that float through the light beam? Have you ever seen that? How many people have seen the dust particles in the light beam? Everybody's seen that. Okay, so the dust particles going through the light beam, pick out one of those particles. That's how God, in comparison, he's big. Nations are small. He sees nations as dust on a scale. When he looks at the United States, we are like dust on a scale. When he looks at the nation of China, he's like dust on a scale. When he saw, back in Isaiah's day, the nation of Assyria and how brutal they are and how vicious they are, Assyrians invented crucifixion. Romans perfected it, but Assyrians were brutal. When he looked at them, he was not surprised by them and he was not scared of them when everybody else was. In fact, he says in Isaiah... He says, I'm actually going to use Assyria as a tool for my purposes. I'm working on a project where a friend of mine is going to loan me scaffolding and a power washer, and I'm going to use a drill and a screwdriver and a hammer. Now, none of those tools are scary to me. It might be scary for me to use those tools. But the tools themselves are not scary to me. And when God says, I'm going to use Assyria as my screwdriver or as my hammer or as my power washer, they were not scary to God. He used them as a tool. He said, listen, Israel has rebelled against me and I have been patient and patient and patient and given them grace and given them grace and given them grace. And now their time for justice has arrived. I'm going to use Assyria to do that. And he said the same thing about Babylon. 
Babylon became a tool for God to use. He was not scared of them. And our God is big enough to look like he has been defeated in battle. He's strong enough to look like he's been defeated in battle. And even, he's strong enough even to have people question him. Because when Babylon came in and destroyed Judah and exiled the people, some of the people abandoned God because it felt like he was not there, but he was actively involved the whole time. Babylon was his tool because Judah had rebelled against God as well. And he said, there's going to be a time where you have to endure the punishment for your sins. Then I will buy you out of exile and return you home. And all of this was written by Isaiah. Isaiah, who continued to believe and think that God should be our hero. He will be wonderful counselor, but he would be mighty God, great hero, champion God. God shows up. Heroes show up, and that's exactly what Christ did. In Isaiah, he writes in this chapter, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. God is showing up and intervening on his perfect timing. That perfect timing involved sending a baby, Jesus Christ, God among us, God living in us, God incarnate. God becoming human to be with us, become just like us. God shows up and intervenes at exactly the right time. That's exactly how Galatians says it, at just the right time. He gave his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, rescue, buy the people out from under the law. That's exactly how Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 6 says it. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. All throughout history, God tells the same story over and over again. The theme is the same. The people change and the uh, circumstances change, but it's the same story. People need rescue and they can't do it themselves. It happened with Israel and Exodus. They were in slavery. They can't rescue themselves. So God sends a hero to rescue them. Gideon was one of the judges of Israel and they were under attack from the Midianites. And God sends a rescuer to rescue them. The people were in Babylon, exiled, and God sends a rescuer to rescue them. In this case, it was the Persian king Cyrus, which Isaiah predicted a hundred years before it happened. And for our case, the story, the theme stays the same. We are in sin slavery, and we cannot escape ourselves, and we need God to be the mighty God, the great hero, and come and rescue us. And he doesn't just send someone. He comes himself in the form of the Son. The person the Son is sent Jesus, the Son, who is fully God and fully human, comes to rescue us. God shows up. The hero shows up. Just the right time, too. Might I remind you that just because it feels like God is not actively involved, He is aware, He is with us, and it's His timing we have to wait on. Isaiah wrote, the child is born 700 years before it happened. The people were called to trust him. 
Jesus has come and he has been with us. He's ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to live with us and be with us. And he asks us to trust him while we wait for him to come back. While he intervenes among us and through us, he asks us to trust him. And he calls us to be that hero to someone else. He says, I will empower you and I will work through you and you go and show up in my name and show people what forgiveness and love and sacrifice looks like. When we get to ask the question, where is God in the situation? It's like God is asking us back, what are you doing about it? Because I am empowering you and working with you and actively involved in all the areas around you to bring about my plan, how are you being the hero I've called you to be? Our hero is God showing up at just the right time, and he tells us to go and act like him. God shows up. He can be our hero. But he also sets free. This happens in, uh, it's talked about in Isaiah 9. God sets free. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. But if we go down, uh, verse 3, we keep reading verse 3 and 4. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you. A people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now this is hard to read as you're being plundered yourself. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Well, that's bringing back to mind what has gone on in Israel. In Judges chapter 6, we read about the Midianites who ruled over the Israelites with a harsh hand. Judges chapter 6 describes them this way. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years, here he is using a nation as a tool again, for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, they would plant the crops, they would till the soil, they would plant the crops, they would water the crops, the crops would grow, and the Midianites would come in and destroy what they've grown and take what they wanted for themselves, and Israel was left helpless. The hero Gideon that God was going to use was no hero at all. He was hiding in a hole in the ground, sifting his wheat so the Midianites wouldn't see him. And God showed up. The Midianites were so oppressive, it says it was like a yoke was put on the people of Israel. A yoke is a wooden bar that goes over the neck of oxen, and they pull the plow, and some yokes are heavier than others, and the Midianite yoke figuratively speaking, that they put on the Israelites' neck was oppressive. It took their food, it took their land, it took their people. And God showed up, worked through Gideon and his men, and defeated the Midianites. And he did it in such a way that it couldn't be anybody but God. The Midianites, 100,000 strong or more, was defeated by 300 Israelite men. And God told Gideon, Gideon showed up with uh, thousands of men, and God said, too many. And, and they dwindled down, and God said, too many. And they dwindled down until there's only 300, and God says, that's the right amount. Let's take those 300 and go fight 135,000. And that way, I'll show you that I am showing up, and I am the hero. God is the hero. And that's exactly how 
Israel defeated the Midianites. You can read about it in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Well, that's what Isaiah brings to mind when uh, Babylon was destroying Israel, Judah. Just as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. God shows up and then he sets free. This is how Jesus works. When Jesus shows up and he goes to the cross, he lives this perfect life. He's completely human, so he can become just like us. He relies on the Holy Spirit, showing us how to do it. And he lives under temptation, but he never sins, so he can become a perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. He goes to the cross to set us free from the sin slavery that we are in, that we cannot do for ourselves. See, heroes set people free. And so Jesus, he comes to us and he says, listen, if you follow me, it's going to be better than anything you do for yourself. And so he comes to us and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Jesus does tell us how to live. He does give us instructions and commands. He does place a yoke around our neck. Whoever you follow, whether it's your own heart or the heart of Jesus, there is a yoke around your neck. If you follow your own heart, it is a yoke of sin slavery, and it is a heavy burden that you cannot bear. And if you follow Christ and put his yoke on you, it will be light and easy. Because he does the heavy lifting. Jesus sets us free. Christ does this. When he dies on the cross, he says he gives us forgiveness. Some of us walk around with guilt feelings inside of us, and it's probably because we are guilty it's probably because we have rebelled against God. We have done things we shouldn't. We have uh, taken our own life into our own hands and we are guilty and we need to be set free from that guilt. And we hear Jesus sets you free and we look to the cross and we ask, how is this possible? God says your guilt punishment should be death. And Jesus takes that death upon himself. So you are being punished on Jesus. If you feel guilty and feel like you need to be punished, Jesus took the punishment. And that relieves and removes our guilt. He paid the penalty that we owed. That sets us free from guilt. It sets us free from sin. It gives us forgiveness. And when he rose from the dead, he offers us his life to live now which adopts us into the family of God, changes us internally so we can start living from the inside out, holy living in God. He's done the heavy lifting, and we just respond by trusting him. Isaiah called the people of Judah, trust in the hero God who shows up on his right time to set you free. And Jesus says, trust in me who showed up at the exact right time to set you free, and I will give you an easy yoke to bear. Heroes, they show up. God can be our hero because he shows up at the exact right time. 
Heroes set free. Jesus can be our hero because he shows up and sets us free from sin slavery. He sets us free from doing things ourselves. He sets us free from trying to work and earn salvation or even earn the grace of God. It is given to us because God loves us and he makes us his own. The heavy lifting's been done, and Jesus can set you free. He can be our hero. Heroes show up, they set free, but they also stoop down. The Babylonian God was different. Babylonian God was Marduk. They called him by different names, and they would build a statue of Marduk in the Babylonian capital. And every year they would have a celebration to go honor Marduk. And the statue was a giant statue of Marduk with a hand reaching down. And it was required of the king of Babylon, if they wanted to be blessed by Marduk, they had to go to that statue. That's the manifestation of their demon god that they worship. And the king would have to reach up on his tippy toes and grasp the hand of God. And that's the blessing that he needed to be the Babylonian king. Babylon was a brutal, vicious kingdom. Marduk, was in, their, uh, in their God mythology, now remember, gods with a little g, idols that these countries worshipped, that these nations worshipped, a lot of times there was a demon, a real spiritual power behind that idol. They would see a manifestation of some kind of power, and they would worship a real spiritual being, but it is not our God who created those beings. It was a rebellious spiritual being. And rebellious spiritual beings have a way of twisting things to make them seem appealing but are actually destructive. So here's the story of Marduk. Marduk, the Babylonian god, was the child god of a mother and father God. Following along? This is the creation story the Babylonians had. We have a creation story where the God, Yahweh, God of all gods, the mighty God, the champion God, creates everything out of nothing. In the Babylonian creation story, the mother and father God give birth to children God who rebel against them. And Marduk kills the dad god. And then he turns to kill the mother god. And when he kills the mother god, Tiamat, he cuts her in half to kill her. And half of her becomes the sky and half of her becomes the land. And he takes the blood from that god and creates humans to worship them. And so the Babylonian culture... Death and destruction was the way to go. Their whole creation story was involved around whoever murdered the best was king. This is a creation story that leads to violence and destruction and chaos. And this is how the Babylonians lived. Versus our creation story where God creates everything and he brings order to chaos. The spirit of God was hovering over the chaos, the dark chaos. And he and days one through three, he places ordered areas and ordered boundaries where days four through six, people and animals and the heavenly beings were going to live. God brings order to chaos and he brings peace to destruction. There's a difference between the creation stories. And the Babylonian god Marduk 
doesn't stoop to anyone, kills whoever is in his way. But our God is powerful enough and strong enough to be a hero because our God stoops. Our God can have the appearance of being defeated and that becomes his victory. Our God looks like he's not actively involved when he's actually running everything. Our God is strong enough to come be with us. A Muslim and a Hindu and a Buddhist and a Christian were talking about their gods and the Christian was listening and the Muslim, Hindu and Buddhist came to the conclusion that the gods they worshipped were not all that different. And the Christian says, I think I understand it. Your God lives at the top of the mountain and if you work hard enough and you are good enough and you climb with all of your might, you may be able to someday reach out and grasp his hand. And they all three said, yes, you've got it. And the Christian said, that is not like our God at all. Our God, Jesus Christ, is at the top of the mountain and he comes down the mountain to be with us and he takes us by the hand when we can't do anything but cry out for help. Our God stoops. Our God is strong enough to make himself like us, to be a baby. Heroes stoop down. They show up, they set free, and they stoop down and rescue people who need help. That's our God. That's Jesus Christ. A son is born. A child is born, a son is given. That's our God. He calls us to do the same. He calls us to show up. He calls us to set free. And he calls us to stoop down, to sacrifice ourselves just like he did. When Jesus went to the cross and gave his life for us, he says, this is my command. In John 15, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, my command is this, love each other as I loved you. How did Jesus love us? He stooped down to pick us up. Love us as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus can be our hero. He shows up, he sets free, and he stoops down. I want to get the name right. Timothy Paul Jones is the name. And I can't tell this story without crying, and so I'm going to try again. Timothy Paul Jones is a preacher, author, uh, speaker, and uh, his family is in the adoption. Into, they've adopted a child. Talk about a hero, right? And the little girl he adopts, she's eight years old when they adopt her, and as he writes this story about the adoption of his new little girl, he is much more gracious to her previous family than I would be. He describes it this way. He says that little girl had been adopted, but that family had trouble integrating her into their family. And so after a few tough years, they dissolved the adoption, and she became available for adoption again. The family that had adopted her previously, they would vacation in Disney World and take their biological children and leave their adopted daughter with a friend. He's much more gracious than I am. 
And so when they adopted this little girl, his wife and him and his family, they were so excited to adopt her and make her their own. And they said, you know what we can do for this little girl? She never got to do it before. We're going to take her to Disney World. And they told her, we're going to take you to Disney World. And she began to act out in ways that she hadn't acted out before. And as the trip grew closer, her behavior got worse. And he took this little eight-year-old girl on his lap. He says, we got to talk. And she said, you're not taking me to Disney World now, are you? And he said the thought had never crossed his mind to not take her to Disney World. And then he said, by the grace of God, he didn't say, you got that right. And if you don't change your behavior, you're not going either. He said he didn't say that. He said, by the grace of God, he said, listen, our family's going to Disney World, right? And the little girl nods her head. And he said, you're part of our family now, right? And she nods her head. And he said, then you got to come with us. And he said her behavior didn't get better, it got worse. He said they got in the van to drive to Disney World, and on their stops, her behavior was worse than it ever had been. And they stayed at a hotel one night, and bad behavior again. He told her, there are consequences to your actions, but you are still part of our family. You're still coming with us. And it wasn't after until she had experienced a whole day at Disney World that her behavior switched. And he said, how did you enjoy your first day at Disney World? And she looked at him and said, you didn't take me to Disney World because I'm good. You took me because I'm yours. See, heroes, they show up, they set you free, and they stoop down to pick you up. Jesus comes to us, and he comes at just the right time, and he sets us free from what is holding us back, and it's mainly spiritual. And he stoops down, he makes us our, he makes us his. And he doesn't set us free because we're good, and he doesn't give us grace because we do good things, and he doesn't give us grace upon grace because we deserve it. He gives us grace because he's made us his. Jesus can be our hero. He makes us his children. And he just keeps piling the grace and the love and the grace and the love on us because of what he did on the cross. And to prove that it was all true, he resurrected from the dead. He raised himself from the dead three days later. And he promises us the resurrection is the promise for us. And if we haven't experienced the resurrection yet, the resurrection is coming. And that's where our hope lies where he will set us free for eternity. Would you make Jesus your hero? Because he shows up, he sets us free, and he stoops down. We, We should respond with communion during this time. When we recognize what Jesus has done for us, we should respond in the way he's commanded us to respond. One of the ways he's commanded us to respond is every time we gather together, we should participate in communion. We should take the bread. He broke bread and passed it out to his disciples. He said, this is my body which was broken for you. And when we eat the bread, we're reminded that his body as it was pierced for our sin. That's the prophet Isaiah again, pierced for our iniquities. His stripes have healed us. When we eat that bread, we're reminded of the torture he went through that we deserved. And we're reminded that his body was pierced on the cross. And we eat that bread and we're reminded that he did that because he was showing up for us and he was setting us free. 
And as we drink the cup, we're reminded that the blood that came out of his body spiritually covers over our sin. The penalty that we deserve was paid through his blood. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're reminded not only of what he did and accomplished on the cross, but that he rose from the dead. He's going to come back again for us and take us to Disney, take us to heaven, which is not Disney World. It's better. And he doesn't come to get us because we're good. He comes to get us because he's made us his. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we worship you because you and you alone deserve to be made hero. Lord, would you open up our eyes and our understanding, our hearts to make you our hero in our lives. Would you use this time of communion to spiritually change us even more, remembering your sacrifice and remembering that you're coming back to get us? Would you remind us that we are children of you? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, I ask that you would pray and consider partnering with us financially so that we could continue to minister here in our community and beyond. Visit us online at wcconline.org backslash donate to find out how you can be a part of what God is doing here. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope to see you back here next time.